With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. We now rejoin today's message already in progress. Now, it's interesting to me, maybe not to you, but it is to me, that this distinction between the clean and non-clean animals uh, was clear to those that study God's Word. One of the things that fascinates me, so when you study literature outside of the Old Testament, you get into Babylonian literature or Assyrian literature and commentaries outside the Old Testament. It's quite fascinating to find out that they even had ideas about this. The Babylonians and the Assyrians, as a rule, brought sacrifices to their deities only from their herds and flocks, their cattle and sheep. And very rare instances, maybe a mountain goat. If they ever sacrificed a pig, Babylonians and Assyrians, pagans, if they ever sacrificed a pig or dog, dogs were always considered to be unclean. So were the pigs. If they ever did it according to their own literature, they were not offering to their gods. They were giving gifts to demons. Or they would sacrifice a dog or a pig to serve as a substitute for a sick person. So that sick person's sickness would go into the dog or the pig and die. So they were always used in very negative ways. Even the Babylonians and Assyrians got a little bit of the spillover about what good and clean animals were for. I know it's hard for you to think of your little dog as being unclean. There isn't anything about the animal itself that puts it in that category, okay? These were distinctions God made with his people to teach them and to be discriminating and discerning. And among the Babylonians and the Assyrians, I read that uh, if by chance a dog entered one of the temples of the great gods, the entire temple had to be cleansed because a dog had gotten in there. So there were these distinctions between clean and unclean animals. The Lord said, take those animals for the purposes of sacrifice. Now, at the end of verse 3, I mean verse 2, he says, and of the animals that are not clean, just the rest of the animals that would not be used for sacrifice, that was the distinction, take a male and a female. A male and female for obvious reasons, amen? You go over to chapter 8, verse 17, when they got out of the ark. It says, bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that's with, with, uh, that is with you. Bring birds and animals, every creeping thing, every crawling thing that crawls on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth. 
Be fruitful. Multiply on the earth. That was the reason they needed to be male and female, so they could come out and begin reproducing. Amen. Verse 3 then adds, And also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female. Again, those birds that were designated as clean here. That perhaps is this time here all birds were designated as clean. Although later in the Mosaic Law there were some flying animals that were designated as being unclean. At this point the birds were included with the clean animals though. Amen. Now all of them, as I said, Preserve for the obvious reason to keep, end of verse 3, offspring alive on the face of all the earth. God's just going to destroy the surface of the earth. He's going to destroy the planet. He's going to destroy everything that lives on the planet. There's going to be a new earth. There's going to be new humanity. There's going to be a new animal kingdom and a new plant world as well. I may add something here that I think is kind of important. To keep offspring alive on the face of the earth, what does he tell you? It tells you that if Noah got on a boat and did not take anybody, there wouldn't be anything left on the earth. What does that tell you? He tells you that without question, this is a global flood. I'm amazed and maybe even a little perplexed when a, you know you could read five or six evangel- evangelical commentators who try to convince the readers of the books that this was a local flood localized in the area this flood just kind of happened around where Noah lived and he just scooped up a few of the animals and sort of chased them in the ark and that this is all sort of a legendary description of what really amounted to a local flood And that's not what the language indicates. It's very, very obvious what you have here. How could you have a local flood, by the way, where the water was higher than a 17,000-foot mountain? That would have to have walls of water to say nothing of many other issues. The point that is being made at the end of verse 3 is that if you don't do this, then the offspring are not going to be alive on the face of the earth. There isn't going to be any animal population if you don't take the animals. I know somebody may be thinking, you know, was there any reproduction going on in the ark for the entire year that they were on board the ark? Well, you could assume there's maybe some. They had plenty of room for expansion, as I pointed out. But the real replenishing occurred once they got off. Now, some of you suggested... That all the animals hibernated for a year. No, the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say they were non-reproductive during the year either. It's been suggested that food was taken on the board to feed them at the front end and not distributed through the year. They all ate a lot and then knocked out by divine anesthetic or something and stayed in hibernation until the ark finally rested then they got up and left. Bible doesn't say that. Doesn't say anything about that. So we don't need to speculate on it either. Amen. We do know that the Lord said if you don't take them, there isn't going to be any future for the animal kingdom. Now I want to digress here for a second. Because you need to understand this. Those of you who are thinking ahead or thinking scientifically about this may ask the question, well, there's so many so many animals in the world right now, right? How do you get them all on the ark? 
That's one of the arguments you hear from people who want to say that this was a localized flood because there's so so many different species of animals all over the world that they couldn't have all been on the ark. Well, that's not true. Let me point this out as well. I did once in a prior program a long time ago, but I'm going to say it here. To show you all the animals that are all over the planet today could come from this group that's on the ark. Amen. I want to show you this. God did not place all the animals in the world today. All the animals that are either extinct or alive. He did not put them all on there. He did not put uh, 52 varieties of dogs, for example. Two dogs could do it. But in the species pair, God preserved all of the genetic material to produce all the animals that ever lived, whether they're extinct or still alive since the flood. And it only took two dogs, let's say, to provide all the genetic material for all the dogs that have ever lived. If you're struggling with this, just think about this. All the human beings that have ever lived came from Adam and Eve. In fact, they came from one other couple as well, Noah and Mrs. Noah. Amen? Everybody on earth came from Noah and Mrs. Noah. All the genetic material is there. The whole of genetics is so amazing, staggering, really, and fascinating. These genes can be put into varying combinations, and various mutations occur, and adaptations occur, so that all the animals of the world that have ever been since the flood can come from two species. Excuse me a second. Now, if you want a better understanding of that, just think like this. Mr. and Mrs. Noah produced everybody on earth, from pygmies and dwarfs to seven-foot-tall NBA players and Zulus and everybody in between. They came from Mr. and Mrs. Noah, came... All skin colors in the earth, all physical characteristics, all body types, eye shapes, noses, eye colors, all hair colors. Do you understand? At least natural hair colors. Hey, man. <laughs> hey, man, don't, oh, don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. Do you understand that all the genetic coding, it's an amazing thing, all of the genetic coding, all of it was in two people. And the combinations multiplied by each new union without limit. To show you how limitless it really is, it's pretty staggering to me. And it's kind of fun for me to poke around in the scientific journals because I'm not used to doing it. But this is something I found that I thought was interesting. Scientists have estimated that in theory, if just two human parents could produce more children than there are atoms in the universe, no two would be alike. Really? That's amazing. We all know about fingerprints, right? Identical twins really are not identical. They got separate fingerprints and separate DNA. And the variability is absolutely staggering. So, as animals and people, two animals of a species mated and reproduced and then variations began to appear. And then some mutations as well. Everything tends to mutate down. I mean, as time goes on, that's what puts a flaw in this 
theory of evolution. Evolution, and it never gets better, it gets worse. Amen? Everything tends to go down, not up. We don't have better dogs today than the two that were on the ark. We have worse dogs today. Inferior, a horse is inferior, sheep inferior, birds inferior. What was existing then, because when there is an, an anomaly, there's a variation or a mutation. It goes down, not up. You cannot get added information. You can only have information somehow harmed or rendered impotent. So you have the varying kinds of animals and mating and mating and people and mating and mating. Then there are certain climates that they find themselves in. And what happens if you have a short-haired dog and a long-haired dog and they wander up to Siberia? Guess what? A few hundred years, you're going to find Siberia with only long-haired dogs. Why? Did they adapt to their climate and become long-haired? No. They were long-haired dogs when they got there, but the dogs with no hair died. That's adaptation. Dead dogs don't reproduce too well, do they? They died. And it's even true, and this is fascinating to study, if you go into warm parts of the world, and for the most part as a general rule, people have darker skin in the hotter parts of the world. Why is that? That isn't because their body evolved into that. It's because darker-skinned people flourish there while pale-skinned people were contracting skin cancers and melanoma and things like that, and they tend to die off. But it's pretty amazing to think of the genetics and how this whole world of humanity and you and I do what we do. Next time you go to the airport, just sit and look at the different people and think how God ever did this. And then say, God must have a sense of humor. Nobody, nobody can make people look like this and not have a sense of humor, amen. This is amazing. God absolutely has an infinite need for variety, doesn't he? God hates clones. It's the individual that appeals to him, amen. All this variety operates out of this one gene pool, created in Adam, then Expounded on again in Noah, plus all the defective genes causing all the mutations of the people. So let me tell you something. Just keep this in mind. You hear all about race relations today. You want to know something? I can settle it real easy. There's only one race on the earth. One race. Period. Mankind. We're it. And everyone's in it. There is not more than one race. There is one race. Let me prove my point. The difference in genetics between any two people in the world. Pick any two. You and the person next to you. The difference in genetics, even if you're a twin from the same family, the same group, is 0.2. That's the difference. All of your genetics is the same except two tenths. And you can even take it a little further. You can look at racial characteristics, skin color, features, eye shape, is 6% of that 0.02 variation, or 0.012. That's trivial. We are all one race. You say, well, I have dark skin. Oh, a lot of people have dark skin. A lot of people have light skin. Some people just have more melanin than others. But there are still people. Humans, there's just one race. And I feel really bad 
talking about these races and we need racial reconciliation. What is that? You have to love everyone, Jesus said. I don't have to accept your race. You're me. You're my race. We are human beings. The difference is culture. Okay, now I can understand that. I can't make you fit easily into my culture if you have been raised your whole life in a different culture. I understand that. It's not a race issue. It's a culture issue. We are all one race. We were all one race on the ark, weren't we? All one family. And we got really big. But we're still one family. Every person that has ever lived on this earth since the flood came from Noah and one of his three sons. Glory to God. In fact, you might think I'm stretching a little bit. I know I need a Bible verse because you want to hold me to it. Okay, Acts 17 says this. Acts 17, verse 26. And he made, he made one. Most manuscripts, King James says, one blood, one DNA, one set of genetic materials. He made from one every what? Nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. You say, well, how do we get all split up then? Oh, well, I'll get to that. One blood, one DNA, one set of genetic material. He made from one every, what? Nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. You say, well, how do we get so split up then? Okay, let's get into that. It's called the Tower of Babel. You remember that story, right? Let's not talk about race. Let's try to be loving and understand about culture. So it was enough to have two of anything on the ark that would supply all the necessary genetic material to repopulate the whole earth with everything that's ever lived here in the animal kingdom as well as the human world. And 4,500 years have gone by. And the curse has been operating as well. And through that curse, there's been mutations as well as adaptations. Certain amount of genetic information has been lost. So disease has developed. Deformity in the genes has caused much of it. No process can add new information. No recovery is possible. Humanity has been declining in its function and in its form. We probably aren't even close at all to what Mr. and Mrs. Noah looked like and what their families looked like. And we certainly want to be, would not be close to what Adam and Eve were. No way. They were perfect. Genesis says that God seen it all and said it's perfect. It's good. And there was everything necessary in that representation of life on the ark to populate the entire planet again. My goodness, we're running out of time. So in verse 4, Noah's told why he needs to get on board. Get into the ark. They call the animals for, verse 7, After seven more days, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And I'll blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I've made. One week. One week. Isn't that interesting? Do you remember even at the end of the age when the Lord Jesus comes, there's a seven-year period called the tribulation. The final preliminary to the great judgment of the return of Jesus Christ, who destroys all the ungodly at the end of that seven-year period. Well, the Lord gave seven days here. Some commentators suggest those seven days were for the mourning of the death of Methuselah, but we don't know when Methuselah died. There's nothing here about that. 
Others have suggested it was for God to mourn for seven days because seven days of mourning was maybe traditional. God needed to mourn the world, the death of the world for seven days. There's nothing in the Bible about that. No doubt it was seven days. It was seven days summoning the last opportunity. Seven days to make final preparations to get on board. Seven days to preach the gospel of grace one more time, one more week, one more day. I think whatever kind of preacher Noah might have been, he probably got cranked up, amen, in enthusiasm in his last week. I'm telling you, people not only saw it coming, but it's coming at the end of the week. And nobody listened. we'll just look at verse 4. He says, I'll send rain on the earth. And somebody might say at that time, what's that? What's rain? 120 years before, God said, I'm bringing a flood of water. There's going to be a flood. Here it's called rain. Now, we understand rain. We know exactly what rain is. But it's very likely they didn't because if you go back to chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, it says, when God created before the fall, of course, in the wonder of the pristine new earth, no shrub of the earth was yet in the field. No plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord had not sent rain on the earth. There was no man to cultivate the ground. Mist used to rise up from the earth and water the surface of the ground. In the original creation, there was no rain. Plenty of water, but it rose up from the earth. It says a mist. Really, a better way to translate that is a, a spring or a flow. It's ebb in Hebrew. It means water gushing up from the ground. Rain didn't come from the top. It came from the ground, which is much more way efficient. Is a much more efficient way to water. If you've been a very sophisticated, beautiful park, or if you've been in a sophisticated golf course, you know they got underground watering systems that waters the roots instead of dropping water on top of the ground, which softens the surface. Sometimes it isn't as efficient. That's the way the original world was created. There was a spring. And there was gushing springs coming up from under the ground. No rain. No weeds. That's what those words mean. Shrub and plant. There were no weeds. There were no crops. He didn't need crops. He didn't need to plow. Amen? Go back to chapter 7. Something's going to change here because God says, I'm going to send rain on the earth. Well, this is something new. There's never been rain before. Water doesn't come down in the ancient world comes up from the ground and flourishes the ground. I think weeds came up after the curse when the crops were planted and the water was still available in the sorry in the soil. Anyway, what happens here, I think, constitutes the shattering of the earth. The crust of the earth letting loose on the surface of the earth all the reservoir of water that up till this point had been under the, the, the crust, under the surface. And the cataclysmic convulsion sent seeds the water into the air and creates this great deluge that essentially drowns the earth 40 days and 40 nights of horrendous rain so in the original hydrology report if you want to call it that it's very different than what we know now we understand the movement of water. The ocean is evaporated in the clouds. The clouds carry it across the land and it's dropped on the land in the form of rain. It runs into the streams. It goes into the rivers and then back into the ocean. And that's the cycle, the hydraulical cycle. By the way, it's explained in intimate, careful details in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. Job talks about it in chapter 28, 24, 26, and chapter 36, 26 to 29 couple other places, Ecclesiastes and Psalms, talk about the cycle. 
But what makes this hydrological cycle work is wind. Evaporation occurs, it's captured in the clouds, the wind blows it across the land, and it's dropped on the land. Cycle goes like that. Just I mean, you learn that in elementary school. In the ancient world, you didn't have any pattern of wind. And this kind of water above this canopy described in Genesis 1. You have water below, you have a complete completely different atmospheric situation. No rainfall in the original earth. And it's likely there was no rainfall until the flood when it says the Lord broke up the pattern of all that creation. We'll look at that next week. Let's go back for me with a moment to verse 4 as we get ready to close here. It says, For seven more days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing I have made. I think it's important here uh, at this particular point to say God never, ever, ever Resist taking full responsibility for judgment. God says, I. He doesn't expect us to get him off the hook. There always seems to be an effort made to sort of get God off the hook for judgment or for holocaust or for devastation. The critics of the world say, what kind of God would do that? What kind of God would destroy the children of Israel? What kind of God would destroy the Egyptian army? What kind of God would drown the whole world? What kind of God would send a hurricane or a tornado or a flood? What kind of God would do that? We scramble and, well, you know, we sort of live like we need to defend God. God doesn't need to be defended by us. God doesn't need... He doesn't resist taking responsibility for judgment. He doesn't expect us to get him off the hook. He doesn't expect us to develop some kind of heresy like the openness theology, which says God essentially is not responsible in anything. In fact, doesn't even know that is going on until he sees it just like you do and then says, oh my, and then tries to sort of, no. That kind of theology developed because people are trying to get God off the hook from the judgments that occur in the world where here we see God accepts and acknowledges he's the one that's responsible for them. God is the executioner. It was the Lord back in chapter 6, verse 6, that was sorry that he made man. It was the Lord back in verse 7 that I'm going to blot man out whom I've created. He doesn't hesitate to accept responsibility. It's a lesson for you. In chapter 7, verse 23, it says, Thus he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the land. In fact, just the opposite. God wants it crystal clear. He wants everyone to know he is judge and executioner. And we'll try and get through this here real quick. I will send rain. Natar, it's a word referring to normal rain. Not a torrential downpour, just normal rain. But it came for 40 days and 40 nights. By the time you get down to verse 12, it's a different word. Now it's the Hebrew word geseum, and it means a torrent. Because after 40 days and 40 nights, what started out as rain becomes a deluge, a torrential downpour. In fact, the word rain there is used in a couple of places. In 1 Kings 18, Ezekiel 13, speaks of a rushing torrent. Now it would be impossible for that to happen under current climatological conditions. Okay, It's just not going to happen. Uh, to imagine it did cover the whole earth higher than the mountains that were nearly 20,000 feet high, you have to have an incredibly di different scenario that we can't even imagine it. And we got to close. But we're talking about something different. We're going to get into that next time, okay? But if what we've gone over today, if you had your eyes open, your spirit touched, Holy Spirit's drawing you, 
to what I believe he intended today, pray this prayer with me so you don't have to go around through the next cleansing of the world. Just pray this prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, I accept the salvation that Jesus bought for me. I accept it in the name of Jesus. And I thank you for washing away my sins, giving to me a new life in Christ Jesus. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed, folks, in all that you do. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.